Well, good morning, church. Good to see you today. Thankful for this time together to look to God's good word and all that he would have for us as we study it and grow in his mighty truths. Um, it's a blessing to see you here and to have you here with us today and um, excited for this second part uh, of our emphasis in this part of the text in Ephesians on marriage. Um, if you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of Ephesians, you'll find that towards the back of your Bibles there in the New Testament. And uh, we're in chapter 5, studying verses 22 through 33, and each week focusing on, on a different part of this text, taking four sermons at least to work through uh, this important passage in Holy Scripture, and God's design and purpose for marriage. In my first sermon, we focused on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, where we saw three important foundational truths. Number one, that marriage is God's design and it's God's doing. He is the one who makes two to become one. Marriage is also a creation ordinance. We focused on the importance of understanding what a creation ordinance is. And to then therefore understand that marriage is for all mankind and it's for all time. It doesn't change. It's for the rest of this creation. And then number three, we looked at the fact that marriage is, is defined by God. He is the one who created it. He is the one who defined what it is. And we look specifically at the uniqueness of that definition, how many of us really miss what that is. We look at marriage as togetherness, and we spent a lot of time looking at God's definition of marriage as oneness, and why that's so wonderful and so important to see rightly. Uh, last week I read to you the helpful and clear definition of marriage as written in the Word of Truth Catechism, Question 29, what is marriage? I want to remind you of its answer. Marriage is a covenant relationship whereby God joins together one man and one woman into a one flesh union designed to be faithful and last until the couple is separated by death. Church, it is so important that we understand what marriage is and how it is intended to be lived out, not according to popular opinion, not according to the tradition of our families or our personal preferences, but, but according to God. I pray that as we look to God's Word, that, that you are humble and that you hunger to grow in an understanding of what God has designed marriage to be and what it's ultimately designed for, purposed for. And that's our focus today. I am excited because I found that many don't rightly understand or have in view God's intended purpose for marriage. We make many assumptions of what it's for. And it's so helpful when we see rightly what God wants our marriage testimony to do. And so we need to take time today to look at the purpose of marriage, and we'll spend some time this morning at looking at the power or the fuel for lasting or thriving 
healthy marriage, which I pray is a true blessing for you. With much to cover, I want to jump right in. Look with me at our entire passage here in Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God's good word. Thankful for it. Did you hear the connection there at the end of the passage that Paul makes? Really all the way through the passage. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant to his bride, the church. In other words, when God created or ordained marriage, he wasn't just thinking about Adam and Eve and Adam needing a helpmate and, and the beauty of that kind of community and the, the, uh, the, the construct by which procreation would happen and, and mankind would multiply. These are many things that are part of the plan of marriage and part of God's design for it. But what he had ultimately in mind to create this unique union of two who become one was designing a template that all of creation would know well. A template that would point to the testimony of Christ and His bride, the church. The eternal covenant that Christ and the church have in eternal marriage. He would use marriage as a huge testimony of the gospel. And this is what we must see today. Paul acknowledges that there's layers or aspects of marriage that are a mystery to us. This mystery is profound, he says. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. There's, there's aspects to what marriage is that are a mystery, that, that are really, in some ways, that belong to God alone. For example, how does God make two who are still two, one, one flesh, in the divine economy of marriage. In some ways, this is a mystery. It doesn't make it not true, but the full understanding of how he does this is for him. Paul's going to say something very critical here in verse 2 when he says this mystery is profound. 
What, what mystery? And he helps to unveil the deeper purpose of what marriage is for in this verse. And in this, really blowing up many people's central view of what the purpose of marriage is. He says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is in reference to the fact that Christ, Jesus Christ, obtained the church, each of the redeemed, each of the elect, by his blood and formed a new covenant with her, an unbreakable marriage. The ultimate purpose of marriage is that it exists for God's glory. More specifically, think of it this way. Marriage exists, its purpose is to display God and the gospel. See, we're guilty in our sin of making so much of what God's doing in creation about only the temporary. And, and, and we have horizontal and temporal views and much of our frustrations are linked to how that's not going well. We need to constantly be reoriented to the design of God and the purpose of God in these things. Especially as we grow in Christ, church. If we slow down for a moment, think about the bigger picture of why we're here, why you and I even exist, why God ordained that you and I were able to wake up today and go about this life. We exist to give God glory. Consider a couple of central passages that point us to this reality. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and, and for whom we exist in one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Romans 11.36, From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Word of Truth Catechism says in question 15, Why did God make us? The answer is God made us to glorify Him so that His glory would be known and praised. Why did God make marriage? To glorify Him. That His glory would be known and praised. Why would the ultimate purpose of marriage be any different than the purpose of why we even exist? Why would it serve a lesser purpose? John, Pastor John Piper says it well when he says, Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to His redeemed people, the church. And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and the church on display. This is why marriage exists. This is its God-given purpose. The covenant of redemption made before creation drove so much of what God did in creation. The covenant He made before anything was created. A covenant to redeem a people through the work of the Son, to the glory of the Father. See the purposes of the covenant of redemption. 
at work in the design of the creation and uniquely in the design of marriage. As we saw in the first sermon a couple weeks ago, marriage is the doing of God. And then today we must see that marriage is for the display of God. It is designed by God to display His glory in a way that no other event or institution does. Christ won the church by His blood, formed a new covenant with her, an unbreakable marriage. So marriage then is like a metaphor, an image or a picture or a model that stands for something more than a man and a woman being committed in love. It's bigger than that. we got to see it with fuller view today. Why would I want to be married if that's God's call in my life? It, it can't just be for the horizontal reasons of who this person is and what we would do and accomplish or have or work through. Part of your reason is to be part of, an active part of this testimony of pointing to Christ's relationship with His bride in the eternal covenant of marriage. Often I'm sitting with couples who are considering marriage to really challenge them to break out of their horizontal reasons. Is, is your work in the Lord, your testimony in the Lord, improved in oneness than it is separate? That needs to be driving why you would do this. Anything that you and I make only about the temporary is really sin. Because in its purpose or its aim, it's ignoring God. It's its scope or its target is temporal only. And, and so it puts God out of the picture. That's sin. If your marriage is only for you and your spouse, if it's only for the here and now, you're missing what it's for. If it's just for love or pleasure or companionship, you miss having eternal eyes for what God is doing in the testimony of marriage. Marriage is special because it points to, it gets to model, it shows in practical everyday ways the intimacy we, the church, the bride, and Christ the groom have forever because of the gospel. It's another way we get to show the redemptive work of Jesus and show that it's good news. Another theologian says it this way, As God made man in his own image, he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones uh, wrote a great book that we love here, um, speaking of the doctrines of grace, called Proof. Currently going through it with my boys, and so I had a fresh view of a very neat description that they gave, the story of the ultimate marriage, and 
all that marriage is in this creation points to it. So I just wanted to share some some excerpts kind of taken or paraphrased by me from part of that book. God the Father is the loving Father. Chose us personally and specifically before time began. God Son is the bridegroom who accomplished everything necessary to win the heart of his beloved bride. When maiden Israel was enslaved, God rescued her from every oppressor. He said, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God, Exodus 6, 7. And he carried her off into the wilderness and joined himself to her by exchanging vows, vows that were made in Exodus 20 through 24. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all peoples who are in the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And God had a specific purpose in these things. And what God did for Israel was a foreshadowing of what he was preparing to do for true Israel. His elect, his bride, the church. This means long before the forbidden fruit stained the tongues of our first parents, God the Father planned for the bridegroom, God the Son, to do what Adam failed to do. The Son would go to war against the bride's oppressor and ultimately grind the serpent's skull into the dust. Then, in God's perfect time, the long-awaited bridegroom invaded human history through a Jewish peasant's womb. And while Satan tried to thwart the plans of the Redeemer, the wedding would go on. The bridegroom gave up his life for his love so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. In God's grace, the Spirit awakens enslaved sinful hearts to the irresistible grace of God. In each of His elect... In God's perfect time, each of us say, I do, to covenant with Christ in marriage. In this, each of us give up our lives, die to ourselves, to joyfully honor Christ as Lord, and to follow Him the rest of our days, until the marriage feast is ordained to happen where we will forever enjoy relationship with the Holy God in holy heaven. Ephesians 5, 31-32 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther once pointed out, speaking about salvation, Christ and the soul became one flesh. And if they are one flesh, and there is between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriage marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage. Luther also said, Who then can fully understand what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here is the rich and the divine bridegroom, Christ, who marries this poor, wicked harlot and redeems her from evil and adorns her with his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that right standing in Christ, her husband, whom she may boast as her own and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell. She will say, if I have sinned, my Christ has not sinned. And all that is His is mine. And all mine is His. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says so clearly and pointedly, My beloved is mine, and I am His. Church, see in marriage the gospel. See God's purpose in these things. See how we have ignorantly, naively missed the bigger reason why marriage is what it is. And be motivated unto God's design for marriage all the more to honor and make much of this testimony. Too many days, church, we're we're guilty of just living out our marriages based on how we feel and what what we want. And it's just so me-centered. We need to cherish our first marriage most. If you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. Therefore, you have a wedded union with Christ who saves you. While while you are nothing but unfaithful and unworthy of His love and sacrifice, He made you His beloved. We must see God's purpose in this creation to make much of His gospel and His glory. We must see God's purpose for marriage is way bigger than love or life lived together or for children. If we're honest, we get really excited about those pieces and we are sinfully mismanaged and being equally or more excited about our marriages getting to have this gospel testimony. And in that we miss the mark. We must see God's design is very unique and very personal in the gospel. 
In this, we must fight our flesh. And what, and what we all too often want to make marriage about. About us. About what works. About what we want it to look like. Please see with me. Your marriage ultimately exists not for you, but to glorify and magnify God. Ephesians 5.31, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What this means is fulfilling your lifelong covenant in your marriage vows is not mainly about staying in love. It's not about being happy. It's not dependent on how it's going, how faithful or present your spouse is. Keeping your marriage vows is about keeping the covenant made before God that displays God's never-ending covenant with His people. The bigger story you're telling with your marriage is about another marriage. A marriage that changes everything, is worthy of all of creation's attention and wonder. When we say in our marriage vows, till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, this is a sacred covenant promise, as we looked at last week. The same kind Jesus made with His bride when He died for her. The only difference is our earthly marriages end with physical death, but our heavenly marriage is forever strengthened with physical death. With this in mind, we must see that breaking your marriage covenant is not merely covenant breaking to the spouse. It is a gross misrepresentation of Christ and His covenant with his bride. This is why Christians find it unacceptable to divorce. Because it is not about us. It's about God and the gospel. This is why we forgive each other. Why we sacrifice. Why we die to self and grow in Christ. This is Jesus' strong point as he reminds the Pharisees in Matthew 19.6, There are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When marriage is about the temporary, when it's about you, when it's about your peace or your happiness, when it's about freedom from conflict, we make it about something man-centered and something far less than what God created it for. What is that? What He created for? For Him. For His glory. To display the irrevocable, unbreakable bond that Jesus has with His redeemed. With His bride. This is so important because so many days we make marriage about companionship, romance, love. Not that those things are not a big part of how a marriage might be healthy or thriving. 
But we must see that there is a work that we're doing, a story we're telling that is so much bigger than the temporary things and workings and ups and downs it's so often too much about. The covenant-keeping aspect of marriage is an essential aspect of what it is intended to do. Too many people look at a marriage relationship as this thing they'll give their best efforts to, and then if for some reason it starts to go foul, then we'll walk away, we'll figure out a way to whatever. And they miss the uniqueness of a marriage vow till death do you part is unlike any other commitment you make. And in that is a large part of the intention of what it is to do. This is why when the fleshly aspects or luster of a marriage become hard or even non-existent, there's still a covenant to keep and there's still a story to tell. A testimony that's way bigger than us. This is also why working on your marriage to grow in Christ, to communicate, to forgive, to serve each other, to stay committed and work through hurts is so important because it affects the story you tell. For those in your own home, your very children, grandchildren, neighbors, close friends, co-workers, church family. Christian, I'll say it again, in the end, it's not about you. It's about God and His glory. Again, this makes sense because our life in Christ is not about us. It's about God and His glory. This is why you can't just resolve to give up if your marriage is not working. You cannot stop trying to grow and mature yourself as much as it depends on you. Far too many married people are content to just settle for what they've become accustomed to in their marriage. No, we must thrive to grow, to mature. I don't care if you're 30 years in. God is able to grow you and mature you unto the fuller things He's called marriage to be and to do. The story it needs to tell. See the sin of pushing that back to go, but what we do just works, so we're just going to leave it alone. That's selfishness. That's an idol of comfort. We must strive for more because our marriage represents so much more than companionship, romance, love. We must see the bigger view of what God has intended it to be and the story He wants it to tell. God designed the relationship between a husband and a wife to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. This is why the deepest meaning of marriage points to these things. And when you wake up each day, I want to encourage you that this is your motivation for why you'll fulfill your roles in your marriage, grow in Christ, die to self. 
Stop thinking about what your spouse deserves based on how they're doing, acting, performing. You wake up with motivations that look to honor God. This is also why the roles of headship and submission, as we're going to study in the coming weeks, are so essential. If our marriages are going to tell the truth about Christ and His church, we cannot be indifferent to God's design for headship and submission. We must understand these roles and faithfully live them out to the best of our God-given ability. I pray that as you're helped to see God's deeper purpose for marriage and the story it so ultimately tells, um, that you take most seriously um, opportunities to grow and mature in these things. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll spend important time studying God's good design for husbands and wives and their roles in marriage. Your right understanding of this is going to be a big part of your growing and maturing in how you live out your marriage or plan to one day be married for you young people. Young people, don't tune out on this. This is some of the most important stuff you're hearing. Because you need to have in your mind a framework, a right framework for what this might be for you. And growing towards that. There's another factor that makes a marriage thrive that we need to spend time with today as it relates to Christ and the gospel at work through each of us. And to understand that, we've got to go back to the beginning again. So turn back with your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll once again arrive at the definition of marriage found in chapter 2, verse 24. Take a moment to see what follows. Why it's so important. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, we spend a lot of time looking at verse 24 in God's definition of marriage in our first week. If you missed that message, please go back and sit with it. It's on our webpage. You can listen to the audio. But look with me this morning at verse 25 and see with me a critical component of a thriving marriage. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When it says they were naked, it means more than the fact that they didn't have clothes on. It means that they were transparent. They were authentic. They didn't need to control what other people knew about them. They didn't need to hide or put on a mask. It also says they felt no shame, which means that they were completely at ease with themselves. They had a stable identity. Outside of sin, they were not embarrassed, nor was sinful judgment at work. Sinful judgment of themselves or of each other. In this, we see God's good design 
that we are to be known, truly known, authentically known, without a mask, and yet loved. We are meant to be transparent and unashamed. The problem is that man chose to disobey God, and as a result, sin entered the world along with its horrific consequences. Consequences that were not small. You realize that some of the deepest consequences of sin is an attack on your ability to truly be authentic and to experience no shame. After the fall, sinful, fractured world entered into a sinful game of hiding, putting up false fronts, who they really are, in an effort to try to be accepted. Sin brought selfishness, And therefore, division. I'm so selfish, I'm so self-minded that I I divide. I'm not humble, I'm prideful. Men and women fight. Judge. Look to serve ourselves, to do what we want. As we talked about in week one, this rails against our oneness because when married people fight for their individualism, you're tearing at what it means to be one, to care for and love each other first. All of this has meant great conflict and plagues in many marriages and sadly drives some to selfish divorcing the union that God's designed to be until death. In our sin, we're forced to choose. And the choice is hard. See, we can be unashamed in a sinful game, but to do that, we can't be transparent have to put mask on. I have to make you think that I'm someone I'm not and then I don't have shame. I hide the real me. This is often why the courting season in a relationship is so tricky because the biggest jerk can be good at putting on a great mask and seem like someone they're not. This is why serious and thorough premarital counseling and seeking humble input and counsel from others who will speak truth into you is so vital before this massive decision to make a till death do us part covenant. Our other option is that we can be radically transparent and honest and open, naked, But in that, in a sinful world, we constantly find ourselves getting rejected. So how can you and I then be honest and real and truly transparent 
before one another without shame, shame of our sin. And the answer is we need a spiritual cover. We need an identity in something other than our broken, sinful self. When Jesus hung on the cross, they stripped him of his clothes. When he was dying for the elect, he hung there naked. This was an ultimate sign of humiliation. Why would he do that for you and for me? So that he could be our spiritual cover. take on our shame, our our sin, our deserved wrath so that we could be in true, transparent community again. So that we could be vulnerable with each other. Only in Christ can a person be truly transparent and not worry about getting judged or rejected. Why? Why? Because your identity is in Christ and not in your failed performance any longer. This is why the person who has gone through horrific life experiences or struggled with deep and gross sin can come to a place in their faith journey in Christ where they share that openly with others. Some people will come to our church and they hear testimony that's shared from our stage. They're boggled. Who does this? Who shares these deep and hard and horrific things that they've been through, gone through? People who are satisfied in Christ do. People who are no longer defined by those things and have been freed in Christ can say, here's who I was. Here's where I've been. Because I know in the deepest part of me, I'm not defined by that anymore. Defined by Christ. I'm at home with Christ. Christ is my identity. Christ is my cover We're designed by, held by, secured by, and saved by Christ. Amen? You must get this. And if you don't, then you're missing a critical aspect of the gospel. This is a massive shift in our identity, transparency, a massive shift in the power to fuel our relationships. That Christ would really bind us together in a way that we never could know apart from Him in our sin. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. The scripture doesn't end there. Uniquely says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
And in this, I find a beautiful imagery to help us discover why Christ being the center of our marriage is so massively important. He's the glue. He's the fuel. The key is Jesus is that third cord that binds. Two just wrapped together are stronger than one. This is true, but they can come unraveled. But two who are in Christ are bound, are glued, are empowered by something bigger than themselves. You take three and braid it together, you can let go of the ends and it will not come unraveled. The love of God is at work. Truly other-centered love. The kind of love that a marriage must have if it's going to truly thrive. Why? Because the moment that you become selfish in your marriage is the moment you make it about you. And this is a fundamental miss because you're acting as an individual when you are one in flesh with another. Problem is, far too many couples live in long seasons of this outside of real oneness. And I would say, when you're in that place, you're really living out what is more like a, a, a state of divorce. Might not be legal paperwork divorce, but the union that God designed to be one it is torn, it is being lived. It, in a different way. Anytime either of you selfishly acts for yourself, pushes against God's design in the marriage and loving, selfless love for another, you, you take what is one and you, and you tear at it to stand on your own feet and go, no, this is the way this is going to be. You put on that individualism again. And you go back to this togetherness thing that we talked about in week one that's so flawed. This is why God's love, His selfless love, fueled by Christ, that we really are living out oneness is so critical. We need a spiritual cover. We need a power at work in us bigger than ourselves. Someone who can bring the selfless love of God into play in a way that we don't produce on our own. We need Jesus. We need Him to change us from the inside out. We need Jesus to change our hearts to love with other-centered affection and care. I would go so far to say the love of Christ at work in you to be faithful, humble, prayerful, to your covenant vow, even when the other person is miserably absent, unfaithful, mean, selfish. The love of Christ is at work in you. The covenant promise continues. But what is cool about this is when God ordains that both belong to Christ, the selfless love of God is at work now in a way that fuels and empowers a marriage to overcome insurmountable obstacles and things you would never think you could survive. 
We need the love of God, church. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John says God is love. Not, not just love is from God. That's too short-sighted. Our world with its shallow and selfish view of love have turned these words around contaminated our understanding of love. The world thinks that love is what makes a person feel good and that it's all right to sacrifice moral principles and others' rights in order to obtain such love. How often is your love for another person construed or set aside or, or, or eliminated because of their performance, because you're not selfishly getting what you long for out of them. That's not a love fueled in God. Real love is from God who is holy and just and perfect. To know God is to know love. Love that is marvelously selfless. A verse that's often read at weddings, but largely missing the mark. Because it's read like with this idea that in all of this white and flowers, you're going to somehow have these superpowers to live this stuff out. All this romance of your day is going to roll over. And it's so flawed. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 is so impossible without Jesus at the home of your heart. The reading of this passage is really to show a couple how absolutely desperate they are for Jesus. Because no one does this outside of Him. Hear it. Hear it with fresh ears. If you think maybe one day it be God's will for you to be married, how desperate you are for Christ if this at all is going to be a reality. And for those of you who are married, to be reminded of how desperate you are for Christ to fuel your marriage, to fuel your love rightly. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful, or proud, or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. And it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And if as I'm reading that, you are guilty of saying, but he or she, stop right there. That's why you don't know this love, why you're not experiencing this love, because you're looking to he or she instead of to him. Because only in him do you know this? Will you do this? 
every moment you're considering holding, withholding love because of their lack of whatever, performance, whatever, is where your focus is completely on the wrong thing. You're desperate for God's love to be at work in and through you. Well, we just read in Colossians 3, 12-13, Since God chose you to be a holy people whom He loves, clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make an allowance for each other's faults, forgiving the person who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. What motivates you to forgive? What motivates you to work through that? The Lord. Every moment you're over-focused on the other person's performance is a victory for the enemy. You're focused on the thing that can't fuel you to love and to live out the covenant you've made. To be satisfied, to be at peace. No wonder you're undone. No wonder you're, you're in so much turmoil. You're turning away from your first love and setting up everything in a temporal framework. When it comes to lasting marriage and real oneness, we must depend on God's sacrificial love to go to work in us, through us. The biggest way we've tweaked love, and we're, we're all prone to this, is we, we think of it as something we do when, when we get. It's really selfish. Worldly love is so broken. It's so opposite of God's love. It's very selfish. And one of the ways to test this is that conversation you've had with someone when they're falling in love, and they go, well, tell me about him, or tell me about her. And then what proceeds to come off their tongue is statements like, well, um, he makes me feel this way, or, or, or she's around me a lot, and I like that, or he gives me things, stuff, status. Uh, she helps me when I'm down. And I go on and on. But you see, all of that evaluation is selfish. I think I'm in love with this person because of all the stuff I get out of them. But that's not what love is. And this is why so much divorce happens. Every divorce is rooted in selfish love. You no longer are giving me what I once hoped to gain from you, so I'm done. You're a nightmare. And some marriages are doomed from the beginning because they've never really known selfless love. And if that's been you, my prayer is God has a marvelous and mighty work to do in you today, February 7th, 2021, to send you on a new course, to know a new height and depth and endurance in your marriage testimony that you've never known wrote down these words long ago and they continue to be very true and I just want you to slow and just kind of meditate on this and see it with me. Selfish love, if that's the way you're evaluating your relationship, what you get out of it, so when you don't get that out of it, now you're really busted up, you don't really want to love them anymore. Selfish love will fade away when the person does not provide any longer what is most desired. I don't love you. You don't give me what I desire, so why do I love you? 
That's selfish love. But in contrast, selfless or sacrificial love will always remain. It remains faithful. Because what is most desired is already had in Christ. My love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on who I am in Christ. Young people, this is why I would argue the most important thing you're looking for in a spouse has very little to do with looks or ability to do whatever, but so much to do with how madly and truly they're in love with Christ. Because in God, that sacrificial love will go to work in you like nothing else. Christ must be the glue. And only God changes you from the inside out to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness. This is why Jesus is so critical to your marriage is the third strand, to braid you together. The priority of your love is also very key. Who or what do you love most in this life? That's a question to do some real business with. And if what comes to mind honestly, quickly, is your spouse, your kids, your job, your favorite team, eh, you're in trouble. Jesus answered this most important question Matthew twenty two thirty seven through forty. Jesus said, "You must, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind." So the greatest and first commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. First and foremost, you must love God, Christian, more than anyone or anything else. To not do this is to be an idolater. To love something more than God is idolatry. Now again, we can be guilty of saying, no, no, I love God. I know that's the right answer. I've been saying that right answer since I was in second grade. Forget that. Do you really love God more than anything else? If everything that you love in the horizontal was stripped away and you only had Christ, would you wake up with joy? Would you go on living and thriving? The answer is no, then you probably have something else in that spot. I think most Christians believe they love God more than anything else, but is that really the case? If you're honest and say, no, I really love blank more than God, then you must see the love you bring to your marriage is inferior than when you love God more than anything else. If you truly love God more than anything else, you will forsake everything else for Him. Meaning, if left with only one thing, if, if family, money, health, status, friends, all that comes after Him. And if you were to lose one of those precious things, you're not undone. Your feet are grounded on the rock. Love the Lord your God with all 
What does all mean here in the great commandment? Does it mean sometimes? Does it mean part way? Does it mean when you feel like it? Does it mean you give him some of your heart? No, all. You want to know the number one thing that will challenge this very commandment in your life that I've seen more than anything else is typically a relationship with someone else. It becomes your great priority. That love relationship gets your priority, gets your best love. Boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe a child. But you have to make sure you don't love them more than God. They cannot be first. They cannot be. I cannot love Jennifer more than him. I want her to love someone else more than me. When I understand this rightly. When my love for her is greater than my love for God, then I'm trying to love her with something that's only of me. And that's very flawed. It's very broken. It's very temperamental. And sinfully often very selfish. But if I love God first and best and most, He is my greatest love, then I'm fueled with His selfless love to love her in a way I never would on my own. He's at the top. His love overflows in and through you to your relationships. I cannot tell you how game-changing this is for a marriage to thrive. And why your growth in Christ is the biggest takeaway. Your intimacy with Christ. Your love for Christ. God at work in and through you. If God is first and you're seeking to obey Him, then your love for whatever else will be accurately placed. And it will be empowered like nothing you ever produced on your own. When we commit our greatest love to God, He reveals how we best love those around us. So I ask you, is Christ the center of your marriage? Is Christ your first love? Are you investing real time into your relationship with Christ? Prayer and His Word, accountability with brothers and sisters to mature in your faith walk? This is the fuel for a lasting marriage. Every marriage I do, I send the couple away from the altar with this benediction from Colossians 3, 14 through 17. I'll read from an old version of the New Living Translation. The most important piece of clothing you must wear is love. Love is what binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are all called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the words of Christ in all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise. Use his words to teach and counsel each other. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus, all the while giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
So it must be in our marriages as we grow in Christ and love God above all else. Before we wrap up, I, I must say that you got to see continually that human marriage is not forever. It points to the marriage that Christ has with his bride, which is forever. But human marriage is not forever. It has a purpose, and it has a purpose for a time. It serves a purpose in this life, and then God calls it done. Its testimony is the gospel. It's, means, it's a means to children and to disciple-making. But it's not needed in heaven. Therefore, therefore, we must hold on to our marriages rightly. It cannot be your identity. It cannot be your joy, your source of joy, your reason for getting up and living, Christian. Maybe you're broken or bent or undone because your marriage is not well lately. You are tapped into something that will not satisfy you. That's why you're undone. Matthew 10.36 is clear to say that a person's enemies sometimes will be those of his own household. Marriage cannot be salvation for you. It cannot be ultimate. While deep companionship, memorable romance, passionate sexual intimacy, precious children may come, you've got to hold all that rightly. We must prepare for, invest into, and hold rightly our marriages, but we need to be so careful not to make them in any way ultimate. Practice yielding to God all things, including our spouses, our children, our jobs, our bodies, to not be defined by them, to not be held captive by them. Christ is our life. Church, your marriage is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. I want to close with an excerpt from one of our favorite books on marriage, this momentary marriage worthy of buying and studying, if you haven't had that in your library, by John Piper. Hear this, pass, hear this excerpt, and then I'm going to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. Marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It's mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church. Knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Being united to Christ by faith is a greater source of marital success than perfect sex, double income prosperity. If we make secondary things primary, we, they cease to be secondary and become idolatrous. They have their place. But they are not first, and they are not guaranteed. Life is precious, and even if it is long, by human standards, it is short. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James 4.14 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't, do not know what a day may bring. Proverbs 27.1 So it is with marriage. It is a momentary gift. It may last a lifetime. Or it may be snatched away on the honeymoon. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days, or it may be covered with clouds. If we make secondary things primary, we will be embittered at the sorrows we must face. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows or calamities 
can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. Very soon the shadow will give way to reality. The partial will pass to the perfect. The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all in all, and the purpose of marriage will be complete. To that end, may God give us eyes to see what matters most in this life. May the Holy Spirit, whom He sends, make His crucified and risen Son the supreme treasure of our lives. And may the treasure so satisfy our souls that the root of every marriage-destroying impulse is severed. And may the marriage-watching world be captivated by the covenant-keeping love of Christ. May it be so. I'm praying for your digestion of these things, the application of these things. What a joy it is to walk with them. I want to turn our attention now towards the Lord's Supper as we prepare to respond in worship and testimony before we go. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I want you to focus on the union you have with Christ because of His substitutional death and victorious resurrection. The symbolism of the bread and the wine we eat and drink points to what Christ did to purchase our freedom from sin and bind us together with Him in the new covenant. In a wedded union that can't be broken. Church, this is our testimony. This is our first marriage we honor to live out in Christ. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 6, 3-8. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? We were baptized into His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing with, so that we no longer be enslaved to sin, for we who have died have been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Church, this is our testimony. This is who we are in Christ, made possible by His death on the cross in our place, and victory over death as the forerunner of new life forever with God. Christian, do you cherish your testimony of your union with Christ? Do you invest into this relationship? Do you honor Him as the head of your life in the days you now live? If not, repent. If so, this is your testimony, not just today, but every day God gives you under the sun. If you're here today and you don't belong to Christ, you're still Lord of your own life, then this Lord's Supper is not for you to do with us. It's for you to witness and consider your guilty standing before God on your own. 
And if it is God's will to give you saving faith, then confess your sin and trust your life to Him and be saved. If this is you, share it with us. We want to come alongside you as you begin to grow in your new life with Christ. What a joy that will be. There's four tables around the room, unleavened bread and bags been properly prepared, some of our protocols and um, cups of wine or juice if you prefer. You can get those church as you're ready during this song. Take time to be humble in prayer, thankful, considering your union with him. Um, those outside the church, observe, observe this testimony. Do business with where you stand before God. I pray you repent and believe. Let's honor him in this time. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time together, the life of our church, this such important text that we got to spend time with today, this, these gospel truths that are so fresh in our ears and now moving through the tangible testimony of the Lord's Supper. I just pray, I pray that even if there's some of this that we've heard before, there's just a way the Spirit is making it fresh and bringing genuine conviction that nothing better could come out of this but some genuine sharing among spouses with each other, longing to honor God and cling to Him all the more, um, preparing hearts for marriage, if it would be your will, according to what you've designed it to be for. We thank you for this time of worship and prayer and testimony in the Lord's Supper. Look forward to us making much of your holy name in these things. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.